Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Most people want to believe in heaven, even if they're unsure of it. Most people do want to believe in heaven. And most people out there today have some concept of it, some, some understanding. Belief in heaven has gone down in the West, in the United States in particular, that shouldn't surprise us. But it stands right now in the recent polls at about 72% of people believe in a place called heaven, just some general place called heaven. But still, there's that other 28% out there, 28%. Now, if you know your history, you probably know the name Robert Ingersoll. He was an atheist way, way back, back in the Civil War. And this man, in the days after the Civil War, he was an arrogant man. You might notice that about atheists. A lot of atheists are very, very arrogant. Well, he was famous in his anti-Christian stance. And once in the front of a large crowd, Ingersoll pulled out his pocket watch and he gave God five minutes. And he said, strike me dead or be disproved. And he was mocking the idea that the God of the Bible would strike men down for blasphemy. So he said to the crowd, then let me do that now. And he held out his watch and he blasphemed God in front of the crowd. And then he started counting off the minutes and the crowd watched and they counted with him two, three, four, five. And when nothing happened, he snapped that watch shut and he said, there, you see, there's no God or I would be dead. Well, when Joseph Parker, the British preacher, heard about it, he said this, and did the American gentleman think he could exhaust the patience of God in just five minutes? And I would add to this that all it proves is that God was not taking orders from an atheist on that particular day, right? Amazing. The amazing part of it is that Ingersoll was a friend of Phillips Brooks. Some of you recognize that name from your hymnal. He was the man who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem. And when Brooks became very ill, he requested that none of his friends come to see him. He wanted to be left alone. But when his friend Robert Ingersoll, the atheist, came to see him, he let him come in right away. And Ingersoll told him, he said, I appreciate this so very, very much, especially when you're not letting any of your friends come in and see you. And Brooks told him, oh, I'm confident I'll see them in the next world. But this is maybe my last chance to see you. Well, Robert Ingersoll, he died at the age of 65 in 1899. Notices of his death were printed in all the major newspapers of New England. And every one, as part of the funeral notice, there was a single line that had a lot of irony in it. It read, there will be no music. He never came to faith in Christ, but I'm confident that Robert Ingersoll now believes in the existence of heaven where God is enthroned in his majesty. The reality of heaven has been challenged by people for centuries. The word of God is going to take care of that problem for us this morning. Moving forward in time, 
Alfred North Whitehead. He was a professor at Harvard. Again, another smug dude. He said this, Can you imagine anything more appallingly idiotic than the Christian idea of heaven? Whitehead died in 1947, but Whitehead now understands the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of hell. Bertrand Russell, another atheist who won the Nobel Literature Prize in 1950, he thought he was so smart. But listen to these depressing words from him. He said, there is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There's no splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, then nothing. Where's the hope in that message? Well, Russell now understands how wrong he was. Or this lady you may know, Madeline Murray O'Hare. Young people, if you don't know these names, look them up. I have some news for you. History didn't start when you were born. The people of God have always had enemies at the gate. And these people have helped to shape the nation into the horrible mess that it is today. O'Hare was a socialist. Yeah, socialism's not new. It's been tried before. She was a socialist. She tried to move the Soviet Union. They wouldn't even have her. She was the founder of the American Atheists and was behind the effort to get prayer kicked out of schools back in 1963. So she stated, there is no God, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no angels. When you die, you go in the ground and the worms eat you. Heaven is a delusional dream of unsophisticated minds of the ill-educated clergy. I guess I'm ill-educated. Madeline Murray O'Hare, she suffered a violent death. But here's the irony of this story. Her son went on to become a Baptist evangelist. And he said this. He said, my mother was not just Madeline Murray O'Hare, the atheist leader. She was an evil person who led many to hell. And then he said, it's hard for me to say that about my own mother, but it's true. Do you have your doubts about heaven? Do you have your doubts about hell? Thinking to yourself that these things are invisible, that no one's ever seen either one, or I haven't seen heaven, so it can't be real. These are some of the thoughts that people have, but the scriptures are about to present to us the eyewitness testimony of a man who is allowed to see what our future home looks like. Every culture of man has had some concept of life after death. And this should tell us something. This should tell us that God has put this in man. He's put this in man, made it a part of him in his conscience. Is the desire of the creation to be reconciled with the creator. Join me in Revelation 21. We're going to move fast this morning. Verses 9 and 10 tell us this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now we are talking about our eternal home at this point in the text. After the creation of the new heaven, after the creation of the new earth, at the center of it all is the new Jerusalem, the permanent dwelling place of God in our glorified and resurrected bodies. We are going to forever worship, fellowship, and serve our God. Amen. 
God's final judgment of men has passed at this point in time. And one of the seven angels who had poured out the bowls of wrath escorted John to give him a tour, pretty nice tour, a tour of the new Jerusalem. The angel called the city the bride, the lamb's wife. Now, the saints of Israel, we remember we talked about this last week. The saints of Israel were often described as a bride to God, to Yahweh. And in the New Testament, the bride of Christ is the church. The bride of the Messiah is the church of Jesus Christ. This new city is the future home to all of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament saints, because the name of a city often stands for the people who make up the city. Now, the bride is the people of God, and the seat of their abode is the new Jerusalem. So John is carried away to a high mountain where he saw the holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, out of heaven from God. Now, John is seeing this in a vision. Speaking of the new Jerusalem in the eternal state, John says in verse 11, watch what he says, having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Still describing the new Jerusalem, John uses two words to describe it, glory and light. And the word here means more than just light. It means brilliance. It means radiance, this shining, beautiful glory radiance. It's referring to the bright presence of God himself. You can't find this expression in the Bible, but the Jewish teachers often called it the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God. It is the glory of God that went ahead of the Hebrew people as they fled Egypt and shined so brightly in the Old Testament in the tabernacle. God's presence with God's people. Jasper then is probably what we would call a diamond today. Clear. And so we're given this picture of heaven's capital city, pictured as looking like a huge and flawless diamond, reflecting the brilliant glory of our God throughout the new heaven and the new earth. Nothing on earth can compare to this city. We simply cannot comprehend the breathtaking beauty and glory of our God. Now look at the walls, verse 12. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, John is still describing this city, great high walls with 12 gates and 12 foundations. Now, go back into the Old Testament with your understanding of how they made the cities back then. Think of these ancient cities. When they built them, what did they do? They had these huge, huge stones. I love huge stones. They had huge stones that went down to the bedrock and they've dug up some of the walls and foundation stones from some of the cities of the first century, specifically of the first century walls of the city of Jerusalem. Some of these stones are absolutely ginormous. Yes, that's a word. Ginormous. They're huge. They're great. Some are about five feet wide and four feet high and 30 feet long. That's huge. They weigh about 80 to 100 tons each and going down some 14 to 19 layers below the ground. See, that's what men had to do back then just to attempt to protect themselves 
But see, they're not going to have that problem in this new city. Verse 25 is going to tell us that the gates will never need to be shut. It will have 12 massive foundation stones. Standing above them are the 12 gates, three on each side of this square city guarded by the 12 angels. One angel at each gate, standing more as a honor guard than anything else. The high walls show the city is secure, but there'll be no need of defending this city. God's enemies are already put away, sealed in the lake of fire. John noticed words inscribed on these gates and notice on the foundation stones as well. On the gates, the text says, were the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel, representing the Old Testament people of God. And on the foundations were the names of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ, representing the New Testament church of God. This city, this beautiful city where we're going to dwell, is going to be a dwelling place for the people of God. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, God's people will be there. And I want you to notice that even in heaven, even there, even in the eternal state, the distinction between the church and the nation of Israel will be maintained. Three gates on each side of the city. Three gates on each side. God's people will be able to come and go as they want to the new earth. And in the new creation, there'll still be the directions of north, south, east, and west. But this is a city like no other. This is a city like no other. Check how big it is. Verse 15, watch what happens. It says, and he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. That's huge. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. Now, the size of this city is staggering. I mean, it is staggering. Each wall is nearly 1,400 miles long. That's a big city. The angel measured using a reed. It says specifically a gold reed, which was about 10 feet long, a common unit of measurement for the Jews. It might, this city might be laid out like a cube since the length and the breadth and the height are all equal. It also could be a pyramid. Some people think it'll be like that. The walls are over 200 feet or 144 cubits. Now, people differ whether they think this refers to the height or the thickness of the walls. I tend to think it's the thickness of the walls. I tend to lean that way, of 200 feet thick. But for the city itself, I want you to think about just how massive this structure is. 1,400 miles would have covered most of the distance of the known world in John's day. From Rome to Jerusalem and to the northern and southern boundaries of the Roman Empire. It's like the land of the lower 48 states from the west coast all the way to the Mississippi River. That's how big we're talking. And we have every indication in the text that John took these as literal measurements. He indicated in verse 17 that these were the measurements according to the measurements of a man. He specifically says, according to the measurements of a man. Numbers written down for us to understand that this is what God is telling us this city will be. People without faith think that this city is too large for the earth. And they're actually right. It is for the old earth. 
but not the new earth, not the new earth. The new earth is going to be different. We already saw the new earth is not going to have a sea. It's not going to have that. So this is the capital city of God's new creation. This city is built by God himself. And if you take a look at what God did, even in the present creation, even in this beautiful state and beautiful world we live in now, the massive size of this city, it should not surprise us one bit. This will be the eternal dwelling place of the saints of all the ages, and it's going to come down and rest on the new earth itself. Now, this city will not just be beautiful. It's going to be big. It's going to be about 40 times the size of England, 10 times the size of France, larger than India. And that's just the ground floor. That's just the ground floor. So when Jesus says in John 14, he's going to prepare a place for us, he means it. It will have room for all of God's people. You know, a Christian couple had considered themselves blessed when they had a beautiful baby girl. She was born to them, and after several weeks, they noticed she seemed to be having some trouble with her eyes. She seemed to be having trouble with her vision. And they scheduled an appointment, and the doctor told them that their daughter, Mary, was rapidly losing her eyesight. She would be completely blind by her first birthday. But when she grew up some, when she got older, they'd be able to do a surgery. It would be possible that when she was 12 years old, that an operation could be done to restore her sight. So for 12 years, this young girl, Mary, she learned to live in the dark. They learned to adapt as a family, but they still waited anxiously for the day where Mary's eyes would be able to see again. And the day finally came and Mary's family traveled to the hospital, which happened to be nestled into the mountains. And the surgery went exactly as it was planned. It was performed. And when the time came, it was just as the sun was setting behind the peaks of the mountain outside of her window. And it was against that backdrop that she saw her parents for the very first time. And with tears running down her cheeks, she asked this. She said, Mom, Mom, why didn't you tell me that the world was so beautiful? And her mother hugged her and said, I tried to tell you, Mary, but I just didn't know how. Words fall short. If the human tongue is inadequate to describe the present beauty of this world, how much more so the next See, John is stumbling into a storage closet of words right now, and he's returning with an armload of word pictures trying to describe this beautiful picture for us. But regardless of what it actually looks like, know this, it truly will be heaven on earth in the most literal sense. So look at the beauty of this city starting in verse 18. It says the construction of its walls was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, chalcedony, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, chrysoprase, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, Amethyst. Words cannot describe this city. No wonder John described it back in verse 2 as a bride adorned for her husband. You know, jewels are so precious on this earth. 
In May of 1967, Ernest Ramboa, she was panning gravel in South Africa, and her and her husband had been working their 30-foot diamond claim for a long time. And they were averaging about 25 to 30 cents a day, finding these little small rice-sized diamonds. But on this day, it was a little different. They found something on this day because she unearthed a diamond the size of an egg. It was huge. They only had $4 between them, and so they had a problem. They could not afford the airfare to take it to the city to have it appraised. So Petrus, her husband, he quietly put the diamond in his pocket and they just started walking and they walked and walked and walked and they walked for four days over dirt roads, trying not to smile, trying to not let the secret out, trying to keep it quiet that they had something big going on. Well, it turned out it was one of the world's largest diamonds. It still is one of the world's largest diamond finds to this day. They received back in that day $302,000 for it. That changed their lives some. But today, it would be worth millions. You know, many people believe that the jasper in the walls of the New Jerusalem are actually diamonds. This city is going to be made of diamonds, gold, and other precious stones. But they represent, hear this, they represent what God can do with the ordinary. They represent a beautiful picture of what God can do with the ordinary. A diamond, if you think about a diamond, it's merely glorified carbon. That's really what it is. It's glorified carbon. The ruby, topaz, and sapphire are glorified aluminum. That's all they are. And the opal is glorified sand. Jewels are the flowers of the mineral world. They rise out of the soil of the commonplace with a beauty that is superior because of the chemistry of God's creativity. His creativity is going to be seen in the New Jerusalem. So start with the foundation of the walls in verses 19 and 20. Adorned with all kinds of precious stones on all kinds of different colors. The city itself is pure gold, like clear glass, and the massive wall around it is transparent like glass. We build walls today for privacy. We build walls today for security. Out front of my house, I have boulders, two of them, big, big boulders. I have a small little fence out there. I have evergreen trees out there. And if you make it past those, I got some thorny plants to welcome you for a reason. Because at the end of the day, I want to relax with my family and I want to keep the sinful world out. 25 years of preaching in countless churches means that I've met some people along the way that really don't like the message of Jesus Christ. And there's some that like us a little too much because they're off in their thinking and so they kind of follow us around. And so we have protection. We have security cameras that hit you the minute you step onto our property. We build walls today for all sorts of reasons. To protect, to keep a barrier between ourselves and this sinful fallen world. But we're not going to need those types of walls in the New Jerusalem. There won't be people trying to harm us in the New Jerusalem. This is a beautiful city. Verse 21 says, streets of pure gold, but transparent like glass. Read it with me. When we see it in the text, it says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, 
Each gate, let's think about these gates. Each gate leading into the city will be created from one giant pearl. People miss the idea of the pearly gates. We make a lot of bad jokes about them. Sometimes preachers do that, but we're not going to do that today. You know, all the other gems, they're metal or they're stones here. But a pearl, think about how a pearl is formed. It's, it's formed within an oyster, the only one formed in the book of Revelation by living flesh. The oyster receives an irritation or a, a wound, and around whatever hurt it, it builds the pearl. The pearl is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The pearl represents pain resulting in beauty, suffering crowned with glory. Reading of these pearls eternally embedded in the doorways of heaven should remind us of Christ's suffering had an eternal purpose for us and opened heaven for us. It assures us that our own suffering in this world for the sake of Christ has a purpose. It can be used by him to reflect his glory in our lives. A street made of pure gold. It's fascinating. The city of Ephesus, where the apostle John lived out his days, was elaborate. It was kind of a fancy place. It had marble paved roads, making it one of the most luxurious cities of the Roman Empire. But marble's nothing. Marble is nothing compared to the streets of gold. How many people have died over the ages fighting over gold? Then it's going to be walked upon. It's like asphalt. No envy or greed on that day. It's why we shouldn't waste our lives now making money the sole focus of our lives. Because the day is coming when we're going to live in an incredibly beautiful and transparent city symbolized by never-ending glory and purity. You always hear people talking about the streets of gold. And I will have you notice in the text that only one street is mentioned. Only one. But I think the way the wording was used, it was meant to convey in reference to all the streets of the city. All the streets of that city will reflect the glory of God, telling us that every step taken, every move made will be on a path that brings glory to God. And then verse 22, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. Now, the natural question looking at this vision here, looking at this city in this vision would be, hey, what's on the inside, John? What's on the inside? We see this beautiful walls and this beautiful city and it's huge. But what's on the inside? Now, I want you to think in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you walked upon the old Jerusalem. You found the temple standing in the center of the city but not specifically in the New Jerusalem. The temple of God had a function then. It symbolized God's presence with man. But under the law of Moses, only the high priest himself could enter the most holy place once a year. In eternity, people will live in God's presence forever. Ezekiel tells us that during the millennium, there'll be a temple that is built for the worship of God, but not in the eternal state. Even now, this building that we meet in here and now today, we meet to learn about God. We meet to gather as a church family to worship the Lord as a family. But we'll have no need then of a special building set apart for worship because saints will be in the immediate presence of the Lord with no need for a mediator. 
And there'll be no need for a sun or a moon, for the glory of God will illumine this city. Now, if you read Genesis, on the fourth day of the first creation, the Lord created the sun, moon, and stars to illumine the earth. But we won't have need of light because God will illumine heaven and earth with his own glory. Now, I want you to notice carefully with me in verse 23. Verse 23 does not tell us specifically that there will not be a sun, moon, and stars. It just tells us that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no need. It will be the city that never sleeps because the Lamb is its light. So we're going to have to wait and see till we get there to see if the sun, moon, and stars exist then. But there will be no need for him because Jesus Christ will be the light and power company on that day. Believers in their glorified bodies will not need rest. We will not need sleep. You know, in July of 2010, Paul Crowther, professor of astrophysics from the University of Sheffield, he announced that they just had discovered a star that they described as the brightest star ever found in the universe. Not even a welder's helmet would help you face the light from this giant star. The mass of the star is roughly 265 times that of our sun. But that is nothing. The brightness of this star is some 10 million times greater than the light that comes from our sun. The star currently named, because they name these things weird names, it's R136A1. It's not twice as bright as our sun, which would be overwhelming enough. It's not just 10 times brighter, which is light so bright we can hardly imagine it. It's not a hundred times brighter. It's not a thousand times brighter than our sun. It's not a million times brighter. This star is 10 million times brighter than our sun. How can anything be that bright? Thinking about this star gives us a sense of what the glorious presence of our God is like. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. How great is our God. He is more than sufficient to meet our needs today, if that's the kind of power our God has. Jumping into Revelation again, starting with verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the translation of verse 24 could be a little bit better. The Greek doesn't have this phrase of those who are saved in the text. It dates back to when there wasn't many copies of the Greek New Testament that was in the hands of the translators. And it it should just read like this, and the nations shall walk in its light. Nations, who are we talking about? We're talking about Gentiles. That's the wording there. It's not saying that the nations of the world, it's, it's saying the saved Gentiles will be allowed in the new Jerusalem. So remember that in the Old Testament, how far could the Gentiles get? Well, they could only get so far in that temple that was built in Jerusalem to the court of the Gentiles. 
So follow this. I believe here the reference is to save Gentiles, not a part of Israel and not a part of the church. So who are we talking about? Not a part of Israel, not a part of the church. These are millennial believers, unable to sin and glorified bodies. That's who we're talking about. And the kings of the earth, those in honored positions assigned to rule, will bring their glory and honor into the new Jerusalem. And first John says right now we're instructed to walk in the light. This has taken it to a new level. <laughs> but when John said that the night will no longer exist in the new Jerusalem, he was speaking literally here, wasn't he? He was speaking absolutely literally, yet there's applications here that we must consider as believers. Because just as the new creation changes the dynamic with the sun, S-U-N, it also changes the reality with sin. There will be nothing that defiles, nothing that causes a lie. The sin nature will be permanently gone. The corruption of the sin in the heart of man will be gone forever on that day. And the evil rule of men and governments will be no more. Just as light replaces darkness, the presence of God will drive out all the wickedness then. In this light, the glory of God, all nations will walk. They will pass through the open gates and enter into the presence of God. Now, this is not the millennium here. To say it is would be to destroy the context and flow of the book of Revelation. It is telling us that the gates will not need to be shut because everything that could threaten this city has already been defeated and cast into the lake of fire once and for all. And so because of this, friends, there will no, be no barriers on that day for God's people. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And only God's people, only God's people, those written in the Lamb's book of life, are allowed by God to enter because everyone else is already cast into the lake of fire. I'm reminded of a little girl named Melissa who was on her home from VBS one day with her mom. She was asking her mom in the back seat repeatedly if she could stop at the library. And the mom asked why. You're always curious why your kid wants to stop at the library. And she kept asking and she said, I want to stop at the library because this morning my teacher told me that the only way we get to heaven is if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I just want to make sure that my name is written there. Well, stop at the library if you want, but you're not going to find that book at the library. It's in heaven. And verse 27 is telling us, this is here to tell us that nothing evil will ever enter into that city. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. These are the people of God throughout the ages, transformed and glorified, living in perfect obedience to our God. See, if it wasn't for the grace of God at work in your life, Christian, your name wouldn't be there neither. If it wasn't for the grace of God working in your life, your name would not be there. This city will be the perfect environment where eternal life and absolute moral purity will continue into the ages. And then we read in Revelation 22, it says, and he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. God's taking it back to how life was back in the garden. When he first created the earth, the earth will be perfectly suited for human life. No need of locks on the doors, work without toil, relationships without conflicts. No more difficult, crabby people in your lives. No more difficult, crabby people to wrestle with. 
No more kind and unloving people. No more disease, no more sickness, no more death. You know, in Genesis, the tree of life was in the middle of the Garden of Eden. Mankind could not have access to it after sin came into the world. Every believer is going to have complete access to the tree of life in heaven. Probably telling us here that this tree is planted either in rows on either side of the river of life, flowing from the throne of God and of Christ, or that the river flows down both sides of the single tree of life. The leaves of the tree being for the healing of the nations does not mean this refers to the millennium. It would be better to translate it. It would be better to say here that the leaves are not for the healing, but are for the health giving of the nations. Do you see the difference? The health giving of the nations. In other words, the leaves of the tree promote the enjoyment of life in the new Jerusalem, not for correcting sickness or disease, because there is none on that day, since there'll be none there. So notice in verse 2, notice this very important detail. It says the fruit will come every month. Every month. You know, Greek philosophers taught that time will end. That's where this idea comes to us from, that time will end. But verse 2 gives us an indication that there'll be some way of marking time there every month. Every month. And we're about to see in verse 5 this expression of forever and ever. It gives us this idea of continuation of time without end. And that's how the Old Testament saints thought of eternity. They didn't think of it as the absence of time so much. They thought of it as the endless extension of time. And there's a difference. And our final three verses need so very little comment, but they're glorious. It says, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Don't miss in verse 3 that the Lamb is pictured on the throne. Remember what we saw last week in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. It said that when Christ, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. See, Christ's reign at the end of the millennium will not end. His kingdom is going to continue on in eternity forever and ever and ever. But it will change. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. No more sin in the eternal state. Not even Moses in the Old Testament, not even Moses was allowed to see the Lord face to face. It's something that we long for as believers. We want to see our Lord face to face. And we will on that day. Only believers in glorified bodies are capable of standing before the Lord. And there'll be no mark of the beast in the eternal state, but we will be perfectly identified with our Savior for all eternity. I was just reading the account this week of a Christian family out on the east coast of the lower 48, facing a situation that is hard to imagine. This was a young family with a lot of children, and the mother was dying. And the young mother knew that it would be a burden. It would be a strong burden raising this family on, on his own for the husband. So before her death, each one of the children was brought to her, one at a time, gut-wrenching but true, one at a time to say goodbye. And from the oldest to the youngest, they came into the room and kissed her as she told them how much she loved them. 
At the very last, the baby was placed in her arms, and as she pressed him to her heart, the nurse knew it was not going to be long before she would actually die. And gently, she took the child from the mother's arms, and with her last words, her very last words, the woman whispered to her husband, My darling, please do everything you can to bring these children with you when you come home. That puts it all together for us, doesn't it? See, faith should lead us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you say you believe, it should lead you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith should lead us to tell others about the glorious home prepared for those reconciled to God by His grace. If you're not sharing Jesus Christ at all in your life, I wonder, are you really living out the Christian faith? Think of what God has in store for us. I just want you to consider this. No more darkness. No more sickness. No more threat of death. You don't have to worry about it anymore. No more sadness. No more fears. Everything will be open and transparent and filled with the presence of our God. Death is never going to enter into our minds. Good things will never end. As God's people give praise and glory and honor to our God and enjoy life with him forever. That's our true home. And understanding Revelation should take away the fears for the child of God. I read a text like Revelation 21 and 22 and I'm homesick for heaven. Absolutely I am. I'm homesick for heaven. It changes my thinking here and now. So tell your children about Jesus often. Tell them about Jesus Christ. It's your greatest responsibility as a parent. Tell your friends about him. Because if we get heaven straightened out in our minds, the most important thing we can do is take with as many people as we can. It's this mindset that led Paul to proclaim this. You know the verse. It says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. See, that's what I want to be known for. I want to be known as someone that always tells people about Jesus, about the hope, about the eternal home prepared for the people of faith. Pray for God to use you. Pray for him to use you. Live for the day when we stand in glory and then we see him face to face. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.